Our help is in the name of the Lord. Thank you for coming to the January School of St. Philip Neri on the topic of stability. Um, before we begin, in earnest, we're going well, in earnestly, we're going to be singing a hymn, uh, Lord of All Hopefulness, on the inside of your, your little booklet there. And we'll stand up and we'll face the icon of the Trinity. Lord of all hopefulness, Lord of all joy, the whose trust ever childlike no cares can destroy, be that awaking and give us we pray your blessing of our hearts, Lord. St. Philip Neri, Apostle of Rome. This love of perseverance and stability he was always endeavoring to instill into the minds of others. For Philip was never contented with practicing a virtue himself. He was always on the watch to cultivate it in others. He was continuing, continually quoting our blessed Lord's words, that he who shall begin, but he who shall persevere to the end shall be saved. Not he who shall begin, but he who shall Okay. He never consented to leave his dwelling at San Geronimo della Carita, although the fathers had often begged him to do so, and used every means to induce him. This reluctance appeared to his disciples a little hard, but the real cause of it was his dislike of the founder of the congregation, a title very uncongenial to his lowly opinion of himself. Besides which, he said that he did not wish to fly from the cross or to leave the place in which the Lord had given him so many opportunities of meriting, and lastly, that having lived there for three and thirty years, he wished to persevere to the end. 
At last, however, the fathers had recourse to the Pope, and he considered their petition to be only what was reasonable, and told the Cardinal of the Cassie to commend Philip, in his name, by all means to go live at the new church. The saint, with his usual prompt obedience, especially to the Pope, submitted instantly, and on St. Cecilia's Day, 1583, left San Girolamo and went to the Vallicella. The change of place, however, made no difference in his manner of living and his retired habits. At the Vallicella, he chose one of the highest and most remote rooms of the house, that he might give himself more easily to contemplation as at San Girolamo. This was his manner of walking in the way of God, which he had undertaken when he was ordained priest, and he persevered in it to the very end of his life. He had still such an affection for the church of San Girolamo, that as long as he lived to keep the keys in his room, sometimes going there himself for an hour or so, and often sending others to look at them. He enjoyed, however, perfect peace at Vallicella, and his residence there gave the greatest satisfaction, not only to his congregation, but to all Rome. For the same end, that is, to serve as an occasion for mortification, he left a cat at San Girolamo when he let, went to live at Vallicella, and for six years together he sent some of his people every day to look after her and also to go to the shambles to buy meat for her. And when they came back, even though cardinals, prelates, or nobles were present, he always asked for the cat whether they had made her comfortable, how she was, if she had eaten cheerfully, with many other minute questions, as if it had been a matter of the greatest importance. On the same day of his removal, he commanded his disciples to carry in procession from San Girolamo to the Vallicella all the few household goods he had, such as frying pans, shovels, and other mean utensils. And while they passed through the Corta Savella, which was at that time a public jail, the prisoners saw them and made game of them, and one of them cried out, Father, fry us some good pancakes. <laughs> the saint, according to his usual custom, managed to earn a little mortification by any means, either for himself or his followers. Thank you, brother. That's our introduction to the topic from the life of St. Philip. So, the topic for this month is stability. It's a, um, it's stability to remain fixed in one place. It's a very oratorian thing. Um, among the priesthood, uh, you have, you know, uh, di um, diocesan priests who will move from place to place at their bishop's discretion, and they are obedient to him, and there's a great virtue in that. Uh, among religious orders, you have, like, the mendicants, the Dominicans, the, uh, the Franciscans, where they, they move from place to place. Their, their identity is sort of being, uh, is part, part of it is being itinerant, uh, is preaching and begging and you know, not having one place they call home. Um, but also in the life of the church, throughout the history of the church, earlier in the history of the church, you have the Benedictines, who lived in one place, who took a vow of stability, and who lived in that monastery for the whole, not, not just for a few years and then moving on, but for the whole entire life. And so within the, within the Benedictines, you have the spirituality of stability. But it's not the same exact thing when you go about a thousand years later when the, or, when the oratory is developed around St. Philip Neri. It's something that's, the oratory is, it uh, has stability, but it's within, usually within a city, not within a countryside, not as a cloister, but as part of the environment which it's in. Um, and there's a couple of things that kind of follow from that. Um, to live in one place with the same people for your entire life, 
demands a great uh, virtue from you. It's a mortification sometimes. And that's, that sort of thing is kind of built into the life of the community of the oratory. Now, for the purposes of this group, rather than just talk about our life upstairs, it's wondering how does that overflow? How does that, any, any insights from the life of the oratory uh, as it's lived among the fathers, how does that really manifest itself for the, the laity, the people that come here, that are fed here, who find great spiritual fruit here? What can they take from that, that, uh, that virtue of stability, even if it's not lived in the same exact way in their own lives? And so what I did, um, unfortunately, the book that we usually use did not have any chapters on stability. Uh, it had perseverance, which is very closely related, but we talked about that a few months ago, uh, back in, like, June, I think. So I couldn't do that again. Um, so what I did instead is I, I mined all the oratory resources, and I found Newman, blessed John Henry Newman, oratorian of the 19th century, wrote to his, um, to his, his novices, to his fathers, certain remarks on the oratorian vocation. Uh, different letters, and uh, that speak very succinctly and deeply on that topic. Uh, and so that's what I chose for uh, our reading. And we'll, we'll go through paragraph by paragraph. And I want to give a little bit of note, a little note on the kind of the, the format of the evening. Uh, I know there's some new faces here, and there's always it always is worth explaining more. Uh, Saint Philip Neri, when he had these kinds of groups back in the 16th century with the original oratory, he had this thing called uh, preaching on the book, or this kind of like this. Um, you had a text in front of you, and you went through it slowly. You let it kind of, you kind of regurgitate it. You, 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 you squeezed out anything you could to try to get as much, as much juice out of that as you can. And it, it became sort of a prayerful uh, a meeting of minds, a, uh, a Lexio Divina, a sacred reading on the text at hand, usually the sacred scriptures. Uh, for our purposes, there will be remarks on the oratory invocation. Um, so as we go through, I'll, I'll read a paragraph at a time, and we'll stop. And there will be, probably, at least at first, substantial silence. As we're trying to figure out, what am I going to say? Is anything, you know, should something have struck me here? Should something not? I don't know. Um, and then when, when something comes to mind, when something, you know, comes up, feel, don't raise your hand, just, just start, start speaking, but also speak loud enough for everyone here to be able to understand. It's a decent-sized group and a, a pretty big room. Um, but feel free to share any, any, any insights you have as we go through. Because if, even if it's not that good of an insight, it might buy someone else enough time to think of something good. <laughs> but also, also it, it, something you say might spur it on. And even if we depart a little bit from the exact text in front of us, that's okay. Um, so that, that will sort of be the, the style. Um, any questions as we go forward? Any, any interesting comments on the, the reading from the life of St. Philip, read by newly minted Brother Reed? <laughs> All right. On Stability in the Oratory, from Selections from Blessed John Henry Newman's Oratory Papers. The congregation is to be the home of the Oratorian. The Italians, I believe, have no word for home, nor is an idea which readily enters into the mind of a foreigner, at least not so readily as into the mind of an Englishman. It is remarkable, then, that the Oratorian Fathers should have gone out of their way to express the idea by the metaphorical word nido, or nest. The congregation, according to St. Philip's institution, is never to be so large that the members do not know each other. They are to be bound together by that body of love which daily intercourse creates, and thereby all are to know the ways of each and feel a reverence for countenances of familiar friends. Familiar faces, exciting reverence, 
daily intercourse, knowledge of each other's ways, mutual love. What is this but a description of home? I like how he says, <coughs> exciting reverence. I think when people come here, they they may not know what it is, but they know that there's something here that's different from um, a collection of people who live together, even if it's not by 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 random, um, who happen to be together. But there's something formed that's very much like a spiritual home. It becomes spiritual, I suppose, because that's what most of us. Yeah. And it's uh, kind of just a note on the word nest. Like, it's not just that it's uh, um, just for the, congreg uh, the congregation, it's for anybody who visits. So it's, um, uh, it doesn't just, just focus on the community, it's open to um, new faces. The Dominicans have an idea. Uh, they're, uh, the way they kind of present their spirituality is to, to contemplate and to share the fruits of your contemplation with others. Well, the same kind of thing that works for the oratory. I mean, contemplate, sure, but, but also the, uh, what's distinctively oratorian, we want to share that with others. So there's an overflow, even there, of what we experience in our life and what we're able to share with those that come to us, the students and all of you. Carol up there that pointed out the exciting reverence, um, which I think is, it struck me too, and I've read this before, <laughs> so I was like, oh wow. Um, but um, what, what I was wondering if anybody had, if anybody had any thoughts on it, there's kind of a, a common saying uh, that, that we all hear, familiarity breeds contempt. And yet, here you have Newman digging into the tradition of the oratory, saying that something that makes the oratory area as a congregation so unique is the familiar faces. And I was just wondering, you know, what is different about familiarity and the way that it's being understood in that kind of cultural context of familiarity breeds contempt with what Newman's getting at. And yes, I do think that the term exciting reverence is a key to the explanation. <laughs> I think just to add on to that too, like um, a lot of people don't understand what charity is, mm -hmm. and so um, the I think people uh, normally when they hear the term like or the phrase familiar familiarity breeds contempt, like it's it's because they're kind of self-seeking, and if there's somebody else that's kind of pulling on their heartstrings, and it's like no, like I want. What's what's good for me? Whereas this place is more focused on charity and focused on other people. So that familiarity is like a, um, getting to know somebody, getting to know what's good for them, and kind of being other centered. That kind of hit at the answer you're going for. Yes, I'm very proud of you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I think it pertains also to like to uh, oh. We can love God more when we know God more. We know his goodness and we're more attracted to that goodness. So in, instead of uh, familiarity breeding contempt, 
knowing one another in a community of the, of the oratory and uh, fathers knowing each other, that that would be a way in which they're, uh, they're uh, seeing Christ in each other and seeing that more, and also with the dynamism of, of their own growth and their spirituality. So in the way that when you come to go God uh, more, you love him more, when you go each other more, as, and seeing the way that Christ is alive and work in their hearts, then there, there is a, a greater reverence. I think one of the challenges, too, with that, um, uh, sometimes you don't really know the, uh, the reverence and the love you have for people until you're separated from them for a time. So even um, the past few years going off to seminary, it was the first time I was actually away from Pittsburgh, uh, from family, um, uh, for an extended period of time. And so when I saw family again after like, coming back, it was like, oh, family, people who understand me. <laughs> people that I'm used to. Like, we have such a, so many common experiences. There's this... Uh, you like it's like renewed, it's rekindled all of a sudden, but like that's not necessarily ideal though that you have to have the separation in order to feel the reverence and to feel the, the love and the charity and the joy that you have from that experience, and especially with God, you don't want to be taking breaks from God and you know saying I'm not going to pray for a while just so I can feel better about you know my relationship with God afterwards. Not a good idea. I think it has something to say right here where it says there are to be bound together by the bond, by that body of love, which daily intercourse creates. So you a mutual coming together daily, for even for some for years, not being transferred from uh, place to place as a diocese priest, but the stability growing in the aspect of love with Christ and the Holy Spirit as a group. Yeah. I was just that I think this can be tied back to the idea of Nido or nest is home, kind of like the glass half full philosophy or glass half empty. You know, you can look at the nest as being a place to, you know, get cozy and comfortable and to enjoy the people around you and to love and just to, to kind of, you know, find joy in every moment. Or you can see the nest as crowded and suffocating, you know, like, get these birds out of here! Like, you know? So, and the same can be said for, you can look at it, you know, as the people around you, as suffocating. Or you can see them as, you know, you could have contempt for that familiarity. Like, oh, they know me, they know all the good about me, all the bad about me, oh, I want to escape. Or you can see it as, oh, that's really exciting, that person knows that about me. Or, oh, I love that about that person. So it really is that mindset, like you're talking about, of God and love. Like, especially in the year of mercy, like honing that mercy. Yeah. I don't know. I just think that's something that we all need to work on every moment. Um, yeah, just to, to, this is a little far afield, but um, to mention the, the other great English theologian, Julian of Norwich, <laughs> to say that she uses the word homely quite a bit to yeah. talk about a relationship, not, and we think of homely as being less than attractive. But what she means is that it's familiar, that it's a part of the home, and this is how how Jesus wants to be able to relate to us. Yeah. So. Consider the great value of silence and appreciating historically and the love of the people. The four loves that C.S. Lewis describes, historically is the most basic, and silence is so necessary in that and we experience that in adoration of course but it's really to truly be silent and listen to the other person and 
absorb what that person is saying to you. It's difficult as you go on, because the more you know someone, the more things you associate with them, the more their face creates different images and things that happen, and it busies your mind, actually, after a while. And that entering into the silence of a relationship becomes more difficult. Yeah, I think um, that uh, off of what Father uh, Fred said about um, the charity of getting to know God, I think that's something we also have to be attentive to in our relationship with God, especially as Catholics who are we're blessed through no merit of our own with the fullness of what Christ has revealed to us with the teaching of the Church and the example of the saints. We also can kind of, in our sinfulness, fall into this thinking we know God and know everything. And that then, in our prayer, we won't experience this exciting reverence. And if we're actually entering into this exciting reverence with God, realizing, like, I am getting to know Him more. I have to get to know Him more. He wants me to get to know Him more. But He is an inexhaustible mystery of love. And then when we recognize that those around us are created in God's image and likeness, I think that um, the, the, the key to, and I, and I think what uh, Anthony was saying about silence is when we experience, and most of us have probably experienced the familiarity breeds contempt thing, it's normally because we're forgetting that there is much more to the person than what we think yeah. we know. And no matter how long we live with someone, there is something about them that God alone can know. And, uh, and do we, you know, Sheila, I think you were kind of touching on this too, do we perceive them as someone who is, is bothersome? Or someone who we are, even if they're difficult, is actually, in God's loving providence for us, a privilege to encounter. Yeah. Is there something more to them uh, that, that God wants us to love and to be enlightened? Yeah, and I, I love the word reverence. Yeah, but there's also, like, going along with reverence, you have this idea of wonder. Mm -hmm. And wonder, like, it's best done with what, uh, what we call mysteries. And God, as a mystery, is something you, you uh, more deeply you know, you enter into it more and more. And it's, it's different than just like a, a superficial novelty where you see something that's new and it's exciting because it's new and you want to see more of it, uh, but then you want to move on to something else and you're done with that thing being new. And, but no, it's a wonder is kind of a, it penetrates more and more into that mystery. And the same thing with other people is that there is a whole mystery to them. They're created in God's image, but also there is a whole story to them. There is a way in which God's working in their lives. There's ways in which providence has manifested itself in, in this particular person, in ways that you can't imagine yet, and you almost have to sit, you know, step back and, and like not give in to another mentality that's entirely detrimental to, to uh, engaging mysteries, and that's looking at people as problems. Uh, when you see them as think they have they have things that are not are right about them, they they make mistakes, they uh, their choices are off, uh, the way their their life is going is entirely you know you see this in families all the time, and how many parents worry about their children going you know wrong directions, you know. You like they they got to be solved. We got to fix this. We got to get them back on the right track. How do we how do we make this person into what I think they should be? And that when we do that, we reduce the person to a problem, and they are no longer an object of wonder. And we can do the same thing with God. Then when we make God into a theological exercise or a merely academic thing, where we can figure out like, oh, this is how the Trinity works. Oh, that's cool. And we don't actually like enter deeply into the mystery of God's love. You know that. And the same thing happens with community, so it's kind of cool. Tied into what Father Stephen was saying about um, 
always being open to the fact there might be things we don't know about someone. I think there can also be a kind of contempt that's in a certain kind of laziness. Like we want to think we know everything about someone, we know what to expect from them. We don't want to let them escape the boxes we put them into because it's too challenging for us. So I think that's another thing where the daily intercourse and all of these things can help you to escape from this sense of, I know you, I know what you're going to do, I know what you're going to say, and not letting people grow as people because we want to feel like we're in control. We know this relationship and we have it yeah. in hand. And sometimes um, it's the other way around in the sense that you think somebody else knows you and so I'm not going to... Uh, like, if I'm trying to be more Christ-like and they know me from, like, when I was more of a, uh, a sinful and, like, uh, secular-minded person, then then it's going to put, uh, uh, I'm almost going to be, like, shamed of where I'm at uh, in certain cases. Whereas, like, you, you don't want to escape what they think of you as well, uh, which can be challenging. Why don't we continue with the next paragraph and see if... Uh, please hang on to your, your insight to see if anything else pops up as we go. St. Philip himself affords us an instance of that attachment to his home or nest, which was a characteristic of his congregation after him. For thirty years and more he lived in one small room at San Geronimo, and he did not quit Rome for more than sixty, 60 years. We know how unwilling he was to leave his old familiar abode. When the congregation was placed in the case of Nuova, the, the command of the Pope was necessary to move him, and when he moved, he seemed by his way of moving to take a good-humored vengeance on his spiritual children, who had brought the Pope upon him. <laughs> this is just Newman just, here's Newman just kind of describing the scene that we uh, had rather read, read earlier. Uh, but what's interesting about this, that being, like, being in the oratory for you know, over four years, and you know, knowing about that story that St. Philip was so resistant to leave his original room in San, Ger San Girolamo, to go to the new beautiful new oratory and you know, the new rooms they have, and to be with the rest of his community, like, what's going on here? He's living, like, sort of by himself, separated from the community. What is going on with St. Philip? But it was this more, like, primordial desire to remain stable, to persevere where one has already grown and come to learn love, where he's, where he's laid down roots. And it's a difficulty for anyone starting an oratory, especially if you're starting the oratory, like St. Philip, where the, actually, the founding of an oratory actually undermines the very stability that's so essential to it. So he had to deal with that tension himself. And I liked how he took vengeance on his own spiritual children. <laughs> Anything else pop up from that? Well, isn't that kind of a superficial view of stability, though? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, explain. Well, I mean, stability really almost is interior, right? Like, yeah. this would be. I mean, I think it's wonderful that this particular order allows communities to be formed in a long line. Um, and that certainly could be part of it, but it seems to me that the stability you men have, or at least that you pursue, is deeper than that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of cool, even in the the life, in the in the, uh, the reading from the life, like when he did move, right. it was like he he didn't change what he did. Right. It was as if he like, you know, it was just a matter matter of changing location, but the inner stability he kept. Right. And I, I think that even highlights like the more important aspect, not just stability of place and all that comes with it, right. but the inner stability that one has with that, one. I mean, that for the rest of us, you know, that's gonna be who, the who don't get to go upstairs to, to our nest uh, tonight, we have, to, we have to find that stability, right? Through you, but bring it with us. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I do think, though, that 
<clears throat> like as much as like there's an interior stability that would obviously be important to foster that the external stability like I don't think the particular charism of oratory and stability could could go on without its exterior manifestation and and then in the sense of what so oratories are always in cities right because they serve a community they have like a purpose with the laity and, and that's how it even began was with secular people being drawn to philip so they're not out in countries because they're not cloistered and and in a city they create this beautiful stable place where over all these years i mean just over the years this place has been here and like obviously now um they create a stability for the community around them um, yeah. that very much has to do with the physical place and it's interesting i i feel so grateful often that the oratory seems to give people permission to say this is where i want to live my life this is where i feel called i'm not moving i'm not leaving like because i i feel like in our world people move so easily and they move for jobs and they move for this and they move for that and and it's almost like an expectation like to be willing to do the will of God is to be willing to up and move anytime the thought might take you that you should go do something else and to be given the permission to say like I promise myself to this place yeah. is actually a really extraordinary gift and I think to even uh, like to maybe further that discussion actually look in the next paragraph might be helpful because that's actually exactly where <laughs> Newman goes with this which is pretty cool <laughs> Another remark may be made. As the oratory is the home of the individual father, so the town in which it is placed is the home of the oratory. A congregation is a sort of native body in a town. It is not a body of foreign priests, but at least in a great measure, it is, as it were, the growth and fruit of a place. The oratory is thus emphatically a local institution. It acts on and is influenced by the town in which it is found. It is the representative of no distant or of or foreign interest, but lives among and is contented with its own people. It kind of off of, um, you know, what uh, Rich and Rin were saying, I think one thing to, uh, this is true of any of the, the oratorian virtues or, or things that we reflect on. What's fascinating is that the saints are in possession in a, in a perfect degree of all the virtues. And yet we can still attribute to one or another specific manifestation. So the Franciscans is poverty, Dominican intellectual formation, these types of things. Um, uh, perhaps you know, the Jesuits, the missionary spirit. And so I, I think we do have to kind of reflect that like, there's something about stability that is important for, for every Christian. And then there's different modes in which that stability is manifested and lived out. And I think, um, uh, Kind of back to what Ren was saying, like, you know, we do live in a culture that is very unstable. People flit uh, from one place to another, from one thing to another, from one uh, curiosity to another on the, the internet. And um, I, I can't remember what book it was in, but Chesterton has an interesting reflection on, like, like tourist behavior. And, like, I mean, he was saying, like, people, they like going here and they go in here. It's like, because you kind of experience it as an outsider. You don't yeah. have to, like, have to, when you're, when you're... 
by the way, I'm not attacking like Vegators because I like it too. <laughs> Sometimes that's not where I'm going. But but I do have to admit that there's there's a certain I don't have to take a certain responsibility uh, for the people in that neat little town or area that I'm visiting for five days. Yeah. Um, whereas when you're home, when you're in this you know uh, you know when you're in this this local body that you care for, you're responsible for, there's no foreign interest. And I think that is something that people in our culture subconsciously are trying to escape. All sorts of interests are, are buying, you know, in directing a person here, directing a person there, and, and you know, families are, are destabilized. I think even nations are destabilized. We're like, you know, we're here, we're there. And you really cannot grow in an authentic expression of charity unless you enter into another person's life. And I think that's often maybe what we, we miss about the dynamic of, of missionaries. They're not exactly flitting from one place to another. Uh, sometimes it kind of surprises me how long Paul was staying in particular areas. I just had this vision of him like, you know, hopping over like the, the little, I don't know, the map you see in Indiana Jones. <laughs> You're like, oh, wait a second. He was with those people for two full years. That's kind of... You know, that's not time to share life. And then his yeah. letters, which you think he's just being polite, like, oh, I miss you so much, Bob. You're like, no, that is a saint communicating <laughs> to this people that he is pained at having to leave them, even though he's doing it at the command of the Lord. And so I think an authentic, those who have an authentic missionary vocation, and even uh, in a diocese, you know, with the diocese the priest getting moved from one parish to another. I do think there has to be that willingness to, to deeply come <coughs> into the lives of the people present at that moment with a certain interior stability that, that is manifested outwardly, even if it's only for a temporary period. But yeah. clearly the oratory has a particular vocation in the life of the church to remain super solid and permanent you know, for a, yeah. a long period of time. Now, you mentioned Chesterton, and I was, I was also looking for that reflection. I could not find it. but. Uh, he would, if Father Josh was here, he would definitely would quote it word for word. But, uh, so, a cool thing. So, uh, another English author. It's on sightseeing, by the way. Sightseeing, okay. Uh, there's another English author who was deeply influenced by the oratory. In fact, went to the oratory boarding school, Newman's Oratory, after Newman's time. And, you know, I was educated by the fathers there, essentially was adopted by the oratory fathers. That's, this is J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, when he describes... Um, in the first chapter of Lord of the Rings concerning hobbits, or no, wait, no, actually, no, beginning of, um, beginning of the Hobbit. He says, in a, a hole in the ground there dug the Hobbit, not, um, not just any kind of hole, this was, you know, described it in detail. And he says, and all that means comfort. Hmm. And there's this kind of, like, desire for comfort. Uh, I mean, you can, you can do it too much, you know, we're not made for comfort, we're made for greatness, but there is this desire to have this, this home, this homeliness, this, this coming to where things are familiar, where where you know you don't have to discover where the silverware is placed. You know where it is. That um, you know it, and it's it's something very natural. We're we're physical beings. We're not just you know minds that happen to be you know, you know on a pedestal of a, a neck that moves around wherever. You know it, it, we are we are meant to be in one place. There's something natural about that, and that because grace builds on nature, that God will kind of work with that. There would be a spirituality too that goes with the particular place that you're at. And sometimes that goes across cultures. As Newman pointed out in the first paragraph, Italians don't have a word for home. Is that right, Father Fred? Do you know? That? It would be the same like uh, 
Casa, it would be house. So yeah. This would be the same as for home. Might have a larger Smith range, but it, it doesn't have a separate word. Yeah. So yeah, that's I, which he's fascinating. Even though Italians, you think they're they're very you know loving, expressive. affectionate, <laughs> expressive people, but they don't have that. But the English in English they do, and that and because they have that word and they use it often, it connotes something. It, it resonates with the English spirituality, and because we speak English, us as well, <laughs> not just those on that on that island, uh, but. You know, God even works with the ways in which our language works. You know, which is sort of just interesting thing. It's sort of a half thought. Um, if anyone could add to that. Uh, I've been thinking a little bit about the idea of home because I've I've lived in the same house my entire life. I've never moved. I was homeschooled all the way up through twelfth grade, and uh, I commute to college now. <laughs> so I stayed under the same roof forever, and now I'm applying to graduate schools all outside of the state. So it's just something that's come to mind for me. What is home? What does it mean to me? What's home going to be in the future? And I think home's going to be the same spot, even if after I go to school and maybe set up a life for myself and my whole family moves to a different house, I think that 70, you know, my house number and street will still be my home. Because um, I feel that because I've stayed here all the time, just being able to know that I can go there and someone from the family will be there for me to talk to has, has been, like you said, a comfort that's kept me out of a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. in, in the experience of being um, traumatically damaged, brain damaged, um, one of the things I discovered, because I had become familiar with this place in Pittsburgh, Having grown up in Hudsonville, but and, like born out in Hudsonville, but moving out here, Pittsburgh, then it being tragically damaged, um, you're ripped out of who you are. What is, and everybody becomes a stranger to you. And there is this, although it's all geographically familiar, I mean, like, I should know this, but I don't. I don't even know my own children. Um, you start to learn that home is home or, or stability is not about my relationship with you. It is so much my relationship with God, but I mean that would seem rather obvious, I suppose, on many levels. But as we become more and more familiar with God, we don't become contemptuous of Him. We can't. Um, and this is. I don't know that I have the words to describe this. Um, this the sense of the fact that we our home is with God and whatever we have around us that is geographically familiar, although it may seem to us at any given time that it is that we have become familiarly comfortable with it, it's not. And um, what we're really seeking or longing for is a deeper Union with somebody who is, as Augustine said, ever ancient, ever new. Mm -hmm. We want both. That's interesting, though, because what um, Father drew for one of his, I think it was his Christmas Eve homily, it was actually just about familiarity breeding contempt with God. And it actually had a lot to do with what we were talking about earlier. And he said, you know, I, I think in 
we we hear the Christmas story so many times and the Easter story and like oh yeah and God came down he was incarnate and he saved us from our sins and all of these things and it's like yes 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 I know God I know all of these things it's like and that's contempt like that dismissive that lack of awe he's like like to to have for a moment the freshness of there is no salvation I know of nothing that can save me and then this like child, this incarnation and like salvation enters the world and to like experience that awe and break through the contempt. And it really was, it was a pretty stunning. How do you, how, but how do you break that contempt? How do you like, is there a method? Is there a, like a, what, what is the, the, the way out of that? Have a fiery preacher be like, this is God. And he saved you. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> I was writing to my sister in the convent um, <laughs> a while ago, and uh, and I was thinking about this actually. And when I, I mean I was raised Catholic, and um, as a young adult, I went pretty far off um, the the way. And uh, and I was kind of writing her that you know Christmas really can only impact someone who who knows they need to be saved. He's only a source of awe if you can put yourself in a position before the incarnation and say, I have lived the life I've lived, but I have no savior. Yeah. My whole experience of my life is that what I have done has cast me off from the face of God forever and there is no hope. And just, just imagine living in that reality rather than the one we have that we've gotten so used to. And she just kind of rest in the real terror of that and the real darkness yeah. of that. And then say, and now out of nowhere, a light shines in the darkness. And what, there's what, like... Yeah, so what, okay. So one of the cool things about this, this idea of stability, it's instability sometimes masks uh, a really terrible vice um, that's terrible because it's so hard to detect. Uh, that's um, achadia, or sometimes just translated as sloth, but it has this more fuller, this fuller meaning, um, you know, sadness about the things of God, or like disgust with activity, or kind of all wrapped together into this one idea of achadia. And the thing about achadia, it's like a, it's like you have theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. There, it's like a theological vice, uh, because it like, it diminishes your fidelity, it diminishes your confidence in God. And then it starts leading to despair, or on the other side of the coin, presumption. And then it, it, it cuts at that same, that joy that you're supposed to have from charity. Like, and it really stunts the spiritual life. And I think it's what a lot of people deal with. They start the spiritual life, they want to do well in it, they, they advance, they, they do pretty good, they start going to confession regularly, more mass, rosary daily sometimes even, and it's a wall. Like they feel like they can't get past it, and they, they go to this kind of despair, and it gets masked like, oh, am I just being slothful or something. Well, no, it's, you know, it, there's this, there is sort of like a theological vice going on. It's the way the Satan can attack you during sort of like your middle age of your spiritual life. And the answer to that, how do you get out of that? How do you address that? Because that's essentially the same thing. You know, uh, the early desert monks uh, considered achadia to mean um, the desire to leave one's cell, uh, which is interesting because it, it's like a sort of like a primitive way of understanding, like wanting to get up and move, you know, that restlessness. And the way out of it, it's, it's constant contact with, the, with Christ, with uh, you know, living the incarnation, um, 
reminding yourself of your own, you know, your own sinfulness, your own need for God's mercy, you know, and uh, taking the opportunities of people around you to be reminded of that. And then to look at God and say, you know, you know, to actually realize his love, not just know that he loves you, but to realize that. These are things that can pull you out of that, that can turn, you know, that can crush that theological bias over time and allow you to live the fullness of faith, hope, and charity. And something we can even pray about, too, when we if you do your rosary, you know, for increase the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, well, one way to increase in them is to take away the very obstacle to them, you know, to fight at the roots of achadia, to recognize that maybe the restlessness in your own life might be due to an even deeper cause that you might need to confront and name and, you know, get over. This cool kind of goes back to the exciting reverence, like that need for, like, awe <laughs> and wonder and sort of like the stability of adoration and the stability of being in one place where your view your vision is the same where you can con where you can live in contemplation of the reality that you've been placed in and sort of abide in that people say that if you're in adoration for a long period of time and or even really in anything if you're looking at one thing not the TV but something stationary <laughs> for a long amount of time that they'll after a while there'll be this strange shift where it's like you're seeing it for the the first time yeah. as if you don't recognize it like a really familiar it's, name it's, it's not a trick, that you write but... it and you're like is that spelled right like because yeah. it doesn't look familiar anymore and you're like is that name really spelled that way? Yeah. I it's had that weird. happen to me one time with the word food. <laughs> <laughs> I thought to myself, this is a word I've known my whole life, and it's such a weird word. <laughs> I had that happen with Father David's name. I wrote David <laughs> like <laughs> ten times. I was like, that can't be right. That's so weird. <laughs> but it's amazing yeah. that abiding is what allows you to see it afresh yeah. and be in awe of it. The word food. <laughs> we'll go, Father Fred. And Father Stephen, do you still have something? Okay. Uh, reminded of a time that with a, a group of friends from Christendom, we went on a hike. And in the midst of the hike, we were getting to the top of the mountain and coming back, but we lost one of the of the men, and we didn't know where he went off to. Uh, Silent sort of fellow, and he, he, when he finally uh, found him, he emerged from the, from the woods. He said, What were you doing all this time? Doing? I wasn't doing anything. I was just. I was sitting there contemplating. What were you contemplating? Well, the good. Was it the highest good, we asked? And uh, I'd be like, no, I think it was the goodness of this rock I was looking at. And it was just enough. Just sort of like lingering on that, like exhausting, squeezing out all the goodness of this, this rock. So uh, if you can do that with a rock, you can get goodness out of even a brother oratorian. <laughs> It seems that like, if we're steeped in those vices, that there's an, there's an absence of gratitude, that, that it, being grateful is what allows you to experience things in their wonder mm -hmm. and in their, their beauty and in their goodness. And um, because of the redemption that Christ has offered us, we know that we can even encounter that goodness in our experience of pain and sorrow itself. Um, and rather than trying to escape it or flee it, which is really what's going on with restlessness, whether it's restlessness 
you know, kind of the typical American experience of being bored or restlessness about needing to get away from familiar faces and to, to experience somebody or someplace new and exciting. Um, uh, there's a failure to be grateful for where you are. Um, and I think, again, I, I was thinking, how do we kind of, um, how do we hold this intention with the Lord saying, like, you know, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, etc., and that we're on a journey, and heaven is our, our true homeland. Um, and I think that's where we as Christians, deep down, we desire and long for the stability of communion with the Heavenly Father and the, the Son and the Spirit, which is the reality of heaven. We're made for that. We're meant to long for it. It is not problematic for us to, uh, to desire that to be expressed outwardly in this world. Most people are called to it in the context of family life. However, because sin entered the world, and now there's this dynamic of, of needing to restore something um, that was lost, God asks us at times to move. And to move when God asks you to, even if it's frequently, is a very different thing yeah. than moving from a place of restlessness and boredom and ingratitude. Well, look at like, um, even the history of salvation. You look at the ancient Israel, uh, and first they were, you know, look at lost the northern, the northern kingdoms, that was a problem. But then they were exiled. Like, there's this dramatic shift from what is their homeland, the promised land, the place where God said he will bring about their promise, that, you know, from them... You know, there will be a king that governs the nations, all these things, you know, the Davidic king, whatever. These, and, these, and this expectation is all squashed. And they're transplanted. They're taken away. They're put in, you know, Babylon, Babylonian captivity for 70 years. That's a, you think that, that's a huge problem. And how could you look, see the, the movements of God's providence if you're in the midst of that, of that, of that exile? But they came back, eventually. And what God did with that exile was pretty impressive. Like that, he even prepared the, the people of the East, the Magi. They come from this line of Daniel that, uh, you know, Daniel would educate the, the, court, the courtiers of the, of the king in Babylon. He so high was Daniel, uh, respected by the king. He would interpret dreams, he would look at signs, and he'd, he was extremely well educated. And he would, that line, kind of following from that, from this one guy, this monotheistic, you know, prophet, this, this, it taught us all these secular pagan people these kings that were also in the court of the Babylonian king. And then when the time came and Christ was born, they saw the signs and they saw the 70, so was it 70 uh, years of weeks or something, weeks of years or something like that. And, uh, and there you go. Now, the Magi see all the signs and they come and adore. Like God is preparing these people for this moment. You know, and like the Jews that were displaced uh, even after that time. You know, they're off in Rome. They're off in Greece. They're off in Alexandria and in, in, in Egypt. And how they're preparing the people there. You have the God-fears. There are people that are coming into contact with the one God. And that when Christianity came about, it ignited. These places, these influences of this Jewish diaspora that's being displaced, God worked in this greater providence, drawn to a greater home, which is ultimately the communion of the, the three persons in the Trinity. So it's interesting. You know, in, even in our own lives, we might be temporarily displaced. We might be moved from one place to another or have to you know, feel up uprooted. But God could be working providentially to bring about even greater stability, or even more than that, a greater love, a greater charity, a greater you know, advantage to our spiritual life. I, I think one thing it ties into what Father Stephen said and also what Anthony said about that persistent longing for God, and I think really acknowledging that can be so important for stability because I think sometimes we feel like, 
I'm still lonely. I must not be doing something. I must not be doing everything right. Maybe I need to find someone new because I still feel lonely. I feel lonely with this person. Or you feel like a traitor telling a friend, I feel lonely. It's like, I'm right here with you. Why are you still lonely? And um, so I think acknowledging that constant yearning for God is very important for relationships and for letting yourself be at peace with where you're at, even if you are lonely, because that's the way we all should be if we're acknowledging the truth of what we're actually destined for and it doesn't have to do with any shortcoming necessarily of the people around us or our situation in life. Yeah. Well, we do have a lot of text to get through, so I'm going to read the next two paragraphs. <laughs> now, we're, this is from a, a different chapter address on uh, uh, this is a, from a long thing, so these are just a few paragraphs here. Our perfection is not brought out either by the sacrifice of human affection or personal attachments. On the contrary, a love for each other, a love of the oratory as a home, is one of the chief characteristics, bonds, and duties of its fathers. First of all, their vocation is to a fixed place, and I may say, to a particular body. Regulars may consider themselves wanderers upon the face of the earth. Such is not a father of the oratory. In spite of that detachment which St. Philip esteems so highly, he bids us, in his role, bind ourselves more closely to each other in love, by daily intercourse and daily knowledge of one another's ways, and even by the very look of familiar countenances. Accordingly, each house is said to be a family, and the superior, the father. Just an initial thought here. The, um, you know, this, we, we, uh, we don't have the sacrifice of human affection and personal attachments, um, but rather, you know, we, we live as a family. And when I was first uh, discerning the oratory and, you know, it was known that I was going to be moving in, uh, one of my older brothers, he's not here today, uh, decided, uh, he told me, he, um, he's like, here's the thing. I have a wife, I have kids, I have a family in which I will have to grow, in which my rough edges will be rounded off, which I'll have to learn how to be to grow in virtue within, within my, with my wife and with my kids. You don't have that. What you have is going to be different. You're going to be living with brothers. You're going to be living as with your fellow priests, and they're going to have to sharpen your, your uh, you know, sharpen. They're going to have to uh, dull down those rough edges. They're going to have to make you into a better person. Uh, I, thought, I mean, I thought that was really insightful because that is exactly what we're kind of trying to emulate here. It's a family that you live with not just for 18 years and you leave out of the house and you come back and visit on holidays, but rather for the rest of your life. And there's a lot of rough edges that I have that need to be softened, that need to be you know, worked around with the people around me. Uh, but I think the same is true also in any, <laughs> I mean, the family context. You know, having that family is a great instrument of one's, uh, is, is ultimately a lot of times the instrument. The people that you consider most familiar are the ones that help you grow the most in your relationship with God. Pope Francis recently said in the United States, like, the family is a factory of love. And for the manufacturing in, the in that factory is that interaction amongst the, the, the family members. In any truly Catholic mind, I mean that word specifically, the Catholic idea of the universal church that all are called to salvation. In any truly Catholic mind, there has to be this constant dialogue between, on one hand, as Pope John Paul II said, Duke and Alton, put on into the deep. And at the same time, to be simply that, <coughs> the sense of Dasein, right? 
is to be that. Okay. Yeah, and I think there's even a greater tension too. I was thinking about even just the topic of stability. There, and sometimes there's there's actually like a greater kind of thread you can draw through each everyone's spirituality, everyone's life, everyone you know. That's this idea of pilgrimage, that you're going from one place to another, that you are, uh, that we are not. In some ways, this this earth is not our home. Our home is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Saint Philip Neri said. And so, so to emphasize stability too much at the exclusion of our final resting place with God, is probably not a good idea. But maybe there's a way in which both things kind of fit together. Well, I think the key is in the mysterious words of our Lord uh, that we encountered in the prophet Isaiah, whenever he was reading the prophet Isaiah in the temple. It's like today these words are fulfilled in your presence. And his constant preaching of the kingdom, that it is already... <coughs> come into existence because of his presence, his action of fulfillment. And it's, the kingdom of heaven begins in the heart of everyone who embraces Christ. Um, it will, at the end of time, be manifested outwardly. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Yet, we actually already have access to that. And that's where I think earlier people mentioned kind of like the stability being interior and, and, and the ability for the Christian to take it from one place to another. Um, and that has to be true, uh, even if the person who, like in an oratorian vocation where you remain stable in the same place for the entirety of your life, or if you have a missionary vocation uh, in one form or another where you're moving around, um, there's a sense in which the kingdom of God already exists, and yet, because we're still in need of conversion, there's the not yet factor yeah. um, that is so present in all of Catholic thought uh, about the mysteries of, of, of heaven. and. The, the primary pilgrimage is not one of moving from one place to another, but of turning from you know one life to the next. You know, kind of like uh, from from one experience of truth to another, as Newman talks about, saying yes with the conscience uh, to the light of truth that God's giving us, um, and therefore entering more deeply and more intimately into communion with Him, and therefore the kingdom of heaven becoming more perfectly fulfilled in our own hearts. Yeah, that's great. So apparently Catholics have a tool to resolve any of these difficulties already, but not yet. <laughs> awesome. Maybe we can round out the rest of these remarks and then see if anything else pops up. This is the reason, says the rule, why the community must not be large. For then this to seek knowledge of and loving intimacy of one with another cannot be. Baraki enlarges on this point. The type of the Italian oratory, he says, according to the mind of St. Philip, was a sort of holy family, having its own private house, and made up of just so many brothers as might be able to know and love each other well. The custom of years, known faces, similarity of character, all that creates human love, becomes that bond of union and perseverance, which the founders of the orders and religious place in the vow of absolute and perpetual obedience. Accordingly, it is a local, nay, a domestic institution. Residence has, in consequence, ever been enforced as a cardinal point in the oratory. And this residence, I say, is treated not simply as a duty, but as a necessary bond of the community in the absence of vows, promoting, as it does, a triple attachment to the place and neighborhood, to the fathers, and to one's own room. 
Seinfeld himself was a remarkable instance of this attachment to one's own room. San Girolamo was his own, his old long-possessed nido or nest, in which he had experienced summer's heat and winter's cold, the jealousy in spite of enemies, and the throng and affection of generations of happy penitents. An attachment like this became a tradition in the oratory, and the word nido is the term expressing it. I think Father Stephen was saying earlier, like, obviously in all, like, saintly, holy, good things we see all the virtues, but there are certain areas in which one is manifested more brightly um, than in others. And I think one of these, and obviously Philip Neary is, like, pretty much a confessor before anything else. Um, I, and it's sort of you know, because none of, so many of the saints had a confessor or a spiritual director for years and years and years, but it was someone who they had to write letters to, or people in, someone in another country. Um, for missionaries, it can be someone that it takes six months for a letter to get to. You know, it, and, and obviously that's there, but it's just not quite the same. And in the oratory, with its emphasis on confession being this source of intimacy with Christ and a place to grow and further that journey. Um, having that kind of access constantly over like 30 years, uh, it's just really an extraordinary thing. Yeah. I think there's something helpful about that too, just even from the perspective of the Oratorian Fathers, like having your feet set give you a great perspective. Like, the stability of place allows for a way of being able to see things and seeing the movements of providence in other people's lives. And uh, I have a little analogy. I was, um, so what, it was a few weeks ago on December 28th, they knocked down the Greenfield Bridge. I really wanted to go see it, but unfortunately I made the stupid mistake of signing up for a holy hour at 9 a.m. <laughs> so, oh wait, no, I'm I did, I, yeah, so I, I didn't, I was able to, I was not able to go see it uh, as it happened in real life, so I watched videos afterwards, but I, I went for a run that evening through Shanley Park, and I was like, oh, I got to go see the destruction, and as I was getting closer to the destruction, I'm going, running through the, the, one of the paths or something, and I, I found I could not really observe what, I, what destruction, I could not see the pieces of the bridge falling, and like, take it in, unless I stopped, unless I had stability of feet, I cannot actually have the perspective on what I was trying to look at. And I think the analogy works for the spiritual life, that we, we have to have our feet set in order to have that greater perspective. In order to have our, our, our eyes fixed on God, you know, we have to keep still. And keep still in mind, right? Well, mind and heart. And, uh, and if God blesses you with place, even better, but, you know. Because I find sometimes that I can sit still, but... This is just everywhere. Yeah. It's really hard to get this to kind of quiet down, especially when the school year starts up again. Yeah, it's the, uh, the uh, recollection. Yeah. Quieting, settling, becoming stable in one's own mind in order to, to put your mind on the things of God. Your analogy actually made me think of multitasking because I think it kind of reached its apex probably five years ago or so where it was like, you're more productive if you're doing you know, multitasking or whatever. And now they have all these studies coming out that are like, multitasking is not more productive. You do much better to focus on one thing and do that thing and then move on to another thing <coughs> when you have 
put the first one to rest. So it just it made me think of that because I think sometimes that sense of multitasking is the enemy of certain kinds of internal or logistical stability. Yeah. <laughs> one thing from these passages that I think can be important for us to reflect on is that in throughout Christian history, there's been a tendency towards um, dualism, kind of, well, I think this even existed before Christianity, like, in our fallenness to despise the body, and emotions, attachments, things like that are, are uh, part of the body, and I know that's kind of difficult for us, because we live in a culture that uh, seemingly loves the body, and <laughs> lifts it up to, uh, you know, an exalted position that it can't maintain, but, um, one thing that I appreciate about the oratory, what I felt drawn to in particular uh, in being called here, it stands in contrast to the way that at least a lot of other spiritualities are presented, is that there has to be this kind of almost harsh detachment from uh, human affection, the appreciation of individuals. And you often hear this in um, no particular friendships. And you know, if you're in a monastery, you have to kind of love everybody equally, and we believe that in the oratory too, like you, you love everyone equally, but but the oratory, uh, and I think you see this also in the life of John Henry Newman, does not despise the natural order. Yeah. It humbly acknowledges that the natural order has to be purified, that, that sin uh, has left us all tainted, and that there can be a tendency um, to allow selfishness to enter in all these things, and, and as our culture does, we, we glorify and praise our emotions as if they're the, the height of truth. Um, but, but that's not the tendency uh, throughout the Christian tradition. And, and St. Philip, uh, both in being you know, stability in the nest and the nido, I was always kind of ashamed of my desire for that. Like, it, as I was being formed in my other community that I didn't belong to, <laughs> technically, because I had an ordinary vocation. And it was so refreshing to encounter uh, these things in, in the spirituality. And I think even for families to realize, you know, you can have, uh, like, the nest was something that really shocked me. And you can have your own things. Philip was radically detached from his stuff. And yet he still proclaimed that it was okay to have it. Yeah, he insisted <laughs> on it. But well, I think there's I think there's two reasons for that. I mean, the uh, one is the uh, the organic nature of the oratory. It wasn't started because someone had a really good idea, and he it just inflicted his model on on people that were willing to follow him. Now, it grew up around Saint Philip Neri. It was a it was a natural attraction. It was a this this growth in holiness of this one person that drew others to him and to Christ that led to this the starting of a community. And then what allows that to kind of be continue to be the case? Another thing too, and there's probably other aspects. But the, um, when that model is transplanted from one place to another, it's, it's not like, okay, now everyone has to be like the Roman oratory, even if you're in England, even if you're in, you know, uh, Brazil. Brazil, yeah, mm -hmm. um, you know, Sao Paulo oratory. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, no, it's, it takes on the flavors in the way of the local community because it is a local institution. We're not trying to fit square pegs into round holes that don't fit. You know, it, it is, it takes on that. It has that flexibility in order to be absorbed into and to be like leaven into the community that's involved with. So there's, you know, there's two aspects. Um, there's probably more as well. So I think both of those are really good points. I mean, uh, St. Philip, the oratory got formed while he's waiting around to go on mission work. Yeah. Right? That was his kind call of, yeah. to be a missionary, right? So he thought. Yeah. 
apparently God had something different in mind, but his plan was to spend his life, you know, kind of not in one spot. Um, and, and as Father Stephen said, I mean, there are plenty of people that are happy down in Mother Angelica's place, right, down mm -hmm. in Pantsville, but that wasn't right for you, yeah. right? So, but it doesn't mean it's not right for them. Oh yeah. Well, it's a different it's a different spirituality too because, right. see, like the nuns, they're stable. Right. <laughs> they're going to be in the same place. But I was a member of a, a Franciscan community uh, where, in theory, they could grow so large and have different houses and, and stuff. Off. And I was never I actually, ironically, I was content to stay there on that property in Irondale. I didn't even want to move up to Hansville to be where Mother Angelica and the nuns had moved right. to, to live their stability. And that was very confusing for me because I knew that if that community grew the way that God would want a Franciscan community to grow, that was going to mean being sent out. Yeah. And I and I felt this ironically this kind of shame for this desire to stay put in Irondale. And then whenever I, I came to know the oratory through Father Joshua in seminary, and while I was reading about Saint Philip and, and the spirituality, it began to click like this may be my vocation. I, I may not be made to be yeah. moving around the rest of my life, right. but that I need this manifestability in this place. Didn't know it was going to be Pittsburgh at that time, in order for me to make that pilgrimage and that journey, journey authentically, you know, to the Lord. And and the other thing too, regarding cause part of the stability, I think it's not disconnected from Philip not wanting them to be religious, not wanting Oratorians to be religious, and so we don't have the vow of poverty in the, in the strict sense, you know, I I actually really do own my laptop. <laughs> As a Franciscan, I got to use a laptop. Yeah. <laughs> he owns his camera. But <laughs> I own my camera. But it's interesting because learning the church's teaching on uh, the social justice teaching, there's two principles of um, one is the, the universal the universal destination of all goods, um, but there's also the church does hold that God there's a place for private property in God's plan, and it's at the service of the stability of the family. Oh, cool! And that, that ownership of private property actually brings about the stability that's necessary for the family life to thrive and to flourish. Which also adds an interesting reflection and insight on the fact that in our culture, hardly anybody owns private property because we're all indebted to the bank. <laughs> like yeah. we're using something, but it ain't, it's not actually I wanna, ours. <laughs> I want to take uh, since you did. Yeah, we have a discussion on, like Franciscanism, and you brought up even like uh, some of my brothers saying Ignatius or someone earlier. I, I, I do want to hit that point of different spiritualities, how they kind of deal with stability. By moving on to the next paragraph. <laughs> One of the sure signs of the presence of the Spirit of God is peace. The saints have gone through many fierce trials. I do not read that they were restless, or if they ever were so, I do not find that it came into the idea or definition of their saintliness. No two saints could be so different from each other as St. Philip and St. Ignatius, one so unassuming, the other so imperial. They are both in different ways inexpressibly calm. The calmness of St. Philip, too, the form of cheerfulness. That of St. Ignatius, the form of majesty. What we do calmly has weight. The first element in St. Philip's spirit is rest and peace. That's something that resonates for me, especially. Um, when I first 
you know, when I was in Brother Reed's spot uh, four, four and a half years ago, and people were like, are you excited to be an oratorian? I was like, well, yes, because you want me to be, but like, am I, am I unsettled? Am I like, like uprooted and like thrown in like a mix of something? No, it's, this is, I'm, I, this is very, I'm calm, this is peaceful, this is natural. I feel this has been a very organic thing. I, I'm very much at home here. And so I, I had to try to nuance the whole excitement thing, because it wasn't excitement. It wasn't being unsettled in that strict sense. Um, but it was, it was based on peace. And, and I think for all, I mean, all saints, you're going you're to see that. I mean, St. Ignatius, you know, you look at his Ignatian um, uh, discernment of spirits. The, the role that peace has, the role that uh, that kind of calmness of, of spirit has in the, being able to discern things of life is, is, is crucial for St. Ignatius. And then for St. Philip, it's the first element in his spirit is rest and peace. Father Mike always says, uh, or used to always say in his homilies, order is the first need of the soul, which I thought was really insightful. Uh, but in some ways, um, stability is almost like a prerequisite sometimes for order. Because unless your feet are planted in one way or the other, you can't establish that order that you need, that your soul really does need. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was kind of remembering when you were talking about each oratory even having its own kind of character and way, that there was a group of us talking about this just last week, about how like the Pittsburgh Oratory is the Pittsburgh Oratory, and the fathers here are clearly like from the Pittsburgh Oratory, because probably like a few months ago, we had a, a visiting oratorian from uh, a Canadian oratory. And uh, <laughs> so he comes in looking very oratorian, and, I'm like, usual myself, I'm like, oh, Father, are you an oratorian? <laughs> he walks and he's like, of course, I'm an oratorian. <laughs> I just like walked away. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious what I was saying to someone. I was like, I really like the Pittsburgh Oratory. I, I don't think I do well up north. <laughs> it was, it's just so great. I mean, I'm sure up there well, it's, interesting. it's great. So that particular oratorian, I guess we're going to keep him nameless, but. Yes. Um, for the purpose of the recording, we're going to give him nameless. So he said to me, I, I, I said, I'm like, I, Father, I, I, people always ask me, like, do I know this oratory? Do I know this oratory? Have I been here? And I'm like, I haven't really been around that much. I don't know all the oratorians. I, I'm kind of new at this. And he's like, don't, don't worry about that. The thing that you have in Pittsburgh is something incredibly special, even among oratories. For you, your oratory is your home. And he recognized that. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, it is. Sweet. <laughs> My impression must have been good. <laughs> yeah. I know it's getting later in the evening, and I do want to close just because this is one of the one of my most favorite things Newman's ever written in its original context. On the next mm -hmm. page, it kind of shows the importance of. Uh, it's not directly about stability, uh, and it's more directly about order, but maybe just giving people a clear idea of what it means to try to attain holiness, to try to be perfect. Um, and so we'll, I'll, I'll read through this entire page and we'll see if we have any extra insights and we can close the evening. It is a saying of holy men that if we wish to be perfect, we have nothing more to do than to perform the ordinary duties of the day well. I think this is an instruction which may be of great practical use to persons like ourselves who make a profession of aiming at perfection. It is easy to have vague ideas of what perfection is, which serve well enough to talk about it when we do not intend to aim at it. 
But as soon as a person really desires and sets about seeking it himself, he is dissatisfied with, the, with the anything but what is tangible and clear, and constitutes some sort of direction towards the practice of it. He then is perfect, who does the work of the day perfectly. And we do not, we do not need to go beyond this to seek for perfection. We are perfect if we do perfectly our duties as members of the oratory. I insist on this, because I think it will simplify our views and fix our exertions on a definitive aim. If you ask me what you are to do in order to be perfect, I say, first, do not lie in bed beyond the due time of rising. Give your first thoughts to God. Make a good meditation. Say or hear Mass and communicate with devotion. Make a good thanksgiving. Say carefully all the prayers which you are bound to say. Say the office attentively. Do the work of the day, whatever it is, diligently and for God. Make a good visit to the Blessed Sacrament. Say the Angelus devoutly. Eat and drink to God's glory. Say the rosary well. Be recollected. Keep out bad thoughts. Make your evening meditation well. Examine yourself duly. Go to bed in due time. And you are already perfect. You can keep these, right? Yeah, you can keep them. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's sing. All right, let's sing. Well, all right, let's, let's stand and say uh, first to the prayer to Saint Philip Mary, and we'll we'll, we'll face the the painting over there for this, and then we'll and then we'll, then we'll sing the closing hymn. Look down from heaven, holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley. From that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender. Undertake the cause of our salvation. Protect thy class. To thee we appeal as our leader. Roll thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindness of pious, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. Through the Spirit God has given us love is Oh, uh-huh.
Christ-like teacher, burn with love for God and man. Preach with fervor, Jesus' gospel, show to Being creepy, has beautiful pictures of Mary, St. Philip, 
Uh, and it, it turns out beautiful. So please feel free to see Emily or Ren over there and enjoy desserts. Feel free to hang around as long as you want.